We are in Romans, in case you have forgotten. We are in Romans uh, chapter 10. It's a whole new chapter. We're beginning tonight. Good night. Uh, the speed is tuckering me out. My heavens, we've covered nine whole chapters, and it's only taken us approximately nine years, I think. So <laughs> uh, we're in chapter 10 tonight. If you have a Bible, then please turn there. Otherwise, allow me to Read the text for you. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, uh, folks, take my word for it. That is a reference to believers, to Christians. Paul is writing this, and he is speaking in general to believers, Jewish believers, uh, Gentile believers. He's speaking to Christians. Those are his brethren. Brethren, says Paul, my heart's desire Here's someone with such an expansive intellect, my goodness. Romans is written like a legal treatise. What a defense of the gospel you find in Romans. It's so systematic and well-organized. And he anticipates every complaint and objection to the gospel, just like a very adept lawyer might. And now we have a view into the heart of the man. He wasn't all head, he was heart. Brethren, my fellow Christians, this is my heart's desire. And not only that, my prayer to God for them. So the them is different than the brethren. Brethren are the ones to whom he's addressing this. Those are Christians. And if so if the brethren are the Christians, then the them are his Jewish kinsmen who do not know the Lord. Do you agree with that so far? Okay, good. There'll be plenty you won't. So, so, so far, we're on the same sheet. So, brethren, he's addressing Christians, his fellow Christians, and he's talking about a heart's desire and a specific prayer on behalf of the them. The them are uh, Jews, like Paul, only the difference is they have not yet come to know the Jewish Messiah. Now, before we take this apart and get uh, any further into the meat of the verse, let me digress just for a moment and mention this. In prior weeks, we spoke about the theme of the first part of Romans 9. I mentioned to you, admittedly, it clearly speaks about divine election. Now, if you're offended by that, you're going to have to take it up uh, with God, who, through Paul, gave us Romans 9, verses 1 to 29. There, the very strong case is made that God elects those who will be redeemed for redemption, and that God can choose to elect folks for all of his purposes, including, it gives an illustration, Pharaoh. So if all we had was Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29, we should all be what's called Calvinists. Everyone here, there would be no argument between Calvinists and another camp if all we had is Romans 9, 1 to 29. Now, if what I'm speaking about is not something you're familiar with, good. <laughs> Don't let me ruin it for you. But there's kind of a raging battle in the body of Christ between these two camps. One opts for divine election, meaning you did not choose the Savior. The Savior chose you. And that was something he predestined for you from before time. That's divine election. It's the Calvinist point of view. The other point of view, the Arminian point of view, these are named after personalities. The Arminian point of view essentially says, no, God didn't choose you for salvation. You chose him so as to be saved. Can you see the difference? One is divine election and the other human choice and responsibility. And because those two camps seem to be unable to be brought together and harmonized, 
well, we're, we're, we're left to choose sides. And so you, can, you could sometimes be asked, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? So if all we had is Romans 9, verses 1 to 29, we must all be Calvinists. However, we have more in Scripture than just that. We also have Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, where Paul prays for the salvation of his fellow Jews. So I ask you the question, if divine election is all we had, would it make sense to pray for anyone's salvation at all? If divine election was the ruling theology and there are no other options, why pray for what's already a decided matter? If God determined from before time who will be chosen for salvation and who will not, if human choice and responsibility, free will, never enters into the redemptive picture, then why pray for the salvation of anyone? Why in the world are you people going to Kenya, Africa, so to share the gospel with folks. Listen, I got to tell you, God, if all we have is Romans 9, 1 to 29, already made that decision for them. You're wasting your time. You ought to use your money and go to Hawaii instead. Lie on the beach. You know what I'm talking about? Eat some pineapples or whatever else. You understand what I'm saying? If all we had is Romans 9, 1 to 29, but we don't. Here we, say, we see Paul, an apostle who surely understands this matter better than I. Here we see him introducing into the equation not just divine election, but also human free will. These are people who are not saved, but Paul imagines can be saved, and therefore he's petitioning the Father for their salvation, which leads me to this, and in your heart, I hope you know I'm right. Don't be forced to choose one or the other. Say both. But then someone will say both can't be. They're mutually inconsistent. It's either that God chose you or that you chose him. You can't harmonize the two. And then you will say very respectfully and humbly, you're correct. I cannot harmonize the two, but God can. And then you say, see you later. Got to go. Get a cup of coffee. Relax. Thank God you're not that person. You know what I'm saying? So there's a third option. So when people ask me, a lot of people say, Stuart, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? No, 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 no. I need a third choice. Or do you see the truth in both theologies? Yes, I do. Both have a scriptural base. Now, here's the deal. I'll tell you what some people do. I'll tell you what most people do. In order to resolve the apparent disharmony and inconsistency between the two two schools, they will opt for one as over against the other. And if you opt for one, then you minimize and eliminate the other. So you feel good because you in your mind have resolved the conflict. You are a Calvinist or you are an Arminian. But in the process of doing that, you have to nullify the other case entirely. But both cases are strong. First part of Romans 9, divine election. Last part of Romans 9 and into Romans 10, definitely human responsibility. So therefore, I think they are both operative in the plan of God. And because God's mind is so infinite, he can bring the two together in perfect harmony and working order. And we're just simply not going to fully comprehend it until we get to heaven. And then even without a word, we'll look Jesus in the eye. We'll see him face to face. And somehow all confusion and distraction will vanish. And we're going to go, ah, now I get it. So I don't want to be labeled a Calvinist or an Arminian. I would rather be labeled a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who humbly sits at his feet 
uh, tries to mine the treasures of Scripture, knowing I will not enter into full understanding of all there is until I see the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus, face to face. I have no problem not fully understanding all that there is in the Scripture. And I'm surely not going to squeeze meaning into it or out of it if God hasn't made it clear. I'm perfectly fine resting in the incomprehensible wisdom almighty God before whom we bow and pray. If I comprehended all of God's ways, then why would we bow before him? He would just be a friend, a buddy, an equal. No, he's way beyond. He's the most high God whose depths of wisdom cannot be entirely plumbed this side of heaven. Okay, Enough of that. Arminianism, Calvinism. Thank you in advance for your emails. I appreciate it. <laughs> Makes me feel appreciated. Thank you. All right, now to the text. Paul was hurt terribly by unbelieving Jewish people. Persecuted, threatened, beaten, run out of town. That was his experience at the hand of his own people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a rabbi above all rabbis. And then one day in a supernatural way, he discovered that there was more to rabbi Jesus than that he was just a good teacher. Paul discovered he was the long-awaited prophesied Messiah. Paul emptied his life and heart so that the Lord Jesus could take up residence in his life and changed him, made him an apostle. Paul went about sharing this with his Jewish brethren. I have found the Messiah of Israel. Most of them responded in a horrible, aggressive way, sometimes beating him, as I mentioned, to the point of death. My point is this. If anyone would have been justified in being repulsed by filled with disdain for, angered by the Jews, it would have been Paul. And yet, as we read his expression in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, we don't see a hint of anger or harshness or hostility towards the Jews. We don't see that. Instead, we read, brethren, he's addressing us, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Folks, his people gave up on him, but he never gave up on his people, which leads me to this application. We who are regenerated and redeemed by God's grace must be awfully patient with those who still yet have not come to know him. We once were apart from Christ. We had the same standards, the same values, the same practices and behaviors, the same perspective on life as do unregenerated people. We may be repulsed by what they value and how they prioritize and all the rest, but we must never be harsh and angry and bitter at all. We must have the heart of Paul for those who are lost. And I think he got his heart from none other than the Lord Jesus. When we go to Israel, we stand on the Mount of Olives. When we stand on the Mount of Olives, we look across a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. We look into the old city of Jerusalem where the temple once stood. 
And from that vantage point, we have the same view that the Lord Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he himself stood on that very spot, the Mount of Olives. And on one occasion when he was there, looking into the old city of Jerusalem, again, across the Kidron Valley and into the city, he uttered these words. It's recorded for us down to this very day in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, oh, Jerusalem, 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 Jerusalem. Then he said, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Baruch, Abba, Hashem, Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, and then he cried. He wept. He did not shake his fist. He did not kick the dust off his feet. He did not grab a sword. He did not obliterate the people. He wept. He said, I long to gather you together just as a mothering hen gathers her brood under her wings. And then he lamented, but you were not Willing. Folks, blasting a lost sinner with angry words simply won't get it done. Don't do it. Paul spoke the truth, of course, in love. The truth spoken in love. Now, there's something else to consider about this verse. I don't know if you're familiar with this theology, but some say that God is finished with the Jewish people. And I can understand why they say this. Most Jewish people are finished with him. Most Jewish people have rejected their own Messiah. Therefore, it would be justifiable for the Messiah to reject them. I understand. I understand the argument. And even though the argument has a bit of reason to it, it seems not to be biblically supported. Surely not by Paul. Why in the world? If Paul for one moment thought that God was finished with the Jews, even though most Jews seem to be for now finished with him, why in the world would Paul, as an emanation of his heart, say, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. If with finality God has rejected the Jews, why is anyone praying for them? Folks, God is not finished with the Jews. And he's not finished with the yous. It's just not the way God is. Therefore, we must never give up on people. We must pray. We must pray. We must pray. We must go. We must go. We must go. Paul's aching heart, his longing heart, his hurting heart for the lostness of his own people, you know, it did not lead him into despair. It led him to prayer. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I got an email today from a dear person who's grieving. She says, my heart is broken. I'm aching. A relative who's on the run from God doesn't want anything to do with him. She can't sleep, this lady. She's shaking. She's nervous. She's depressed. Paul's longing heart, his hurting heart, <laughs> his concerned heart did not lead him to despair with regard to lost people, it led him to prayer. 
so too we should be led. We can go crazy when we think about the mass of humanity. Who will die apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? There may be some of those in your own family, neighborhood, workplace, or school. Your heart is broken for them. But don't let it be so broken that you're paralyzed in inactivity. Let despair lead to prayer. God hears the prayer uttered by his children and begins to work out opportunities for the person, the people group you're playing, praying for to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not be able to talk to certain people about God, but you can always talk to God about those certain people. Do it. That's an evangelistic strategy. Pray for them. Now, there's another theology. I am sorry for all this, folks. This may be of no interest to you today, but there's just stuff going around. So uh, uh, here's another thing. It's called the double covenant or two covenant theory. And to make it simple, it says this. Jesus as Savior is needed only if you're a Gentile person. Gentiles must be saved through Jesus the Savior. He is for you, but not for Jews, because Jews don't need him. They are already saved through the first covenant, the old covenant God made through Abraham and Moses, and so on. Sharing the gospel, therefore, with Jewish people is not necessary. Offending them with the notion that their Jewishness is not enough to give them entrance into heaven is not necessary. They have a rich tradition. They're recipients of the first covenant given through Abraham and Moses and all the rest. Don't offend them with your Jesus. Jesus is only for you. There's two covenants, one for the Jews and one for you. You see what I mean? That's the double covenant theory. Do you like it? It's going around. It's going around. And I just want to put it to a quick end uh, by asking you if you're a Bible person. See, if you're a Bible person, we make final and ultimate recourse to what the Scriptures have to say, not what appeals to my head. Paul an inspired writer of Scripture does not buy into the double covenant theory at all. Let me tell you something. Why in the world would someone as intelligent as Paul sincerely and passionately be praying for the salvation of Jewish people if they're already saved? Can you see that? The mere fact that he's pleading for their salvation implies they're not saved which implies there aren't two ways to be redeemed. There's only one. Jesus is right. I am the way, the truth, the life. No Jewish person, no Gentile person, no person comes to the Father but by me. There aren't two ways to salvation. There's only one. I'm not saying that. God is in the Bible. So watch out for that because that thing's going around too. I'm coming dangerously close to naming some people who hold to it. And I, I had a good lunch, am not going to do it. I feel good. You know what I mean? I had a good lunch. I'm in a good mood. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be a nice guy. Unless you ask me. No, no, no. So Paul doesn't buy this. Jesus is the way to be saved. 
His death, burial, and resurrection for all people, Jew and Gentile. Now Paul says this, verse 2, I testify about them. The them is still unsaved Jews. I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And there's two words, there's different words for knowledge in the Greek. One is gnosis. Have you heard gnosis, gnostic? Knowledge means knowledge of the facts. Paul is not saying they don't know the facts. But the word he uses here is not knowledge. It's epignosis, epignosis. Epi is a prefix. I know it's not a Greek class, but I just want to tell you. That's a different kind of knowledge. That's complete knowledge, full knowledge, full understanding. So they've, they've heard, perhaps, of this Jesus, but they don't have full understanding of what he has done for them. Oh, they have zeal, but they don't have saving knowledge, only factual knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could really understand and relate to these folks because really what he's saying here about them could be said about him before he met the Messiah. My goodness, he was so zealous about Jewish religious traditions. He used to persecute those who were members of what was called the way. Jesus is the way. Early believers are called the way. <clears throat> he was so he was like these unsaved Jews. He was so zealous, yet without full knowledge, he persecuted those who had found the Messiah. In fact, here's what he told believers in a place called Galatia about his life before he met Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing, he says, in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I think one of the reasons why Paul could not be harsh, hostile, and angry <clears throat> with unsaved Jews is that he was one and remembers. This is his testimony. I was zealous to such extent I was, I was being promoted in Judaism and I was a persecutor of the church. Oh boy, he knows about zeal, but misdirected zeal for sure. It's the kind of zeal his fellow countrymen have. Down to this very day, there's no denying this about Jewish people. They have a zeal for God. You know, our recent trip to Israel glaringly illustrated that for crying out loud special garments special separation from that which is worldly special diets special times of fasting special times of praying we flew back with a number of orthodox people on the plane and when it came time for formal prayer they didn't care who was around. They got up, found a place on the plane, gathered together, long black garments, sometimes shoes that looked like slippers because uh, the thought is when you approach God, you should do so without haste in a relaxing way. Long side curled, curls, we call them peyote, hats, a little skull cap, and sometimes a big old hat on top of it tzitzis or, uh, or uh, fringes on the corners of their garments, a tefillin or phylacteries, leather straps connected to two leather boxes in which are scripture. Don't hold this against me if I tell you, man, do they look weird. <laughs> I, 
I actually don't mean any offense, but they're so separated from fashion, from the norm. Holy Toledo, they are surely visually odd, and they don't care. I had the pleasure of sitting next to a very orthodox one uh, on the way back. We ended up together. A very ner nervous man. He didn't much like me, uh, as I didn't even say anything yet to, uh, to him, but he didn't like me. We were just talking, and uh, so he, he says, your mother Jewish? See, because to them, if your mother's Jewish, you are. If your father is Jewish, you ain't. We can talk about that another day. And I said, oh, yeah, not just my mama, also my papa. I'm like the real deal. I'm the full-fledged Jew. I said to him, I'm as Jewish as you. <laughs> Man, uh, sort of went south <laughs> from there. However, I respected him. He had his prayer book. I said to him, what are you reading? That's his, I knew it. It's his prayer book. We call it the Sidur. And he didn't care who was there, including me. He's praying. He ordered a kosher meal. He didn't care that this was special attention. You know what I mean? He was singled out. Here's your kosher meal. He didn't care about uh, disturbing me. I was sleeping. And he said, excuse me, excuse me. He had to get up. I thought to go to the bathroom. No, it was time to pray. He, was, he just didn't care. He was a young guy. You know, I think maybe, I don't know, early 30s, something like that. Looked weird. Just, you know, all this, kind of like an, almost like an Amish. You know what? I'm just defending everybody. I'm just, I'm just saying the appearance. But, but, but my, here's my point. You can't question the zeal of a person like that. And it's a zeal for God. But Paul says it's not in accordance with full, complete, saving knowledge. That's what he's, I mean, praying and fasting and studying and submitting and bowing and separating. Zeal for God for sure, but not in accordance with knowledge. Why? Well, they persisted in believing that righteousness, which I defined a few weeks ago as not being right behaving. Righteousness is right, not right living. It's right standing. Righteousness means you're right with God. Paul's people, my people, persisted in believing that the way to be right with God is about the things you do for God, not about the one thing God has done for you on the cross. Can you see the difference? They know about God. They know you, nobody can have the gall, the arrogance, the audacity to think you can stand in the presence of God without being right with him. You have to attain to righteousness. Here's the problem. They think you attain to it by doing works, the law, religious traditions. They don't understand. You come into right standing with God, not by virtue of what you do, but by virtue of what he has done. So verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness, see? Not knowing about God's righteousness. And seek, not knowing about the way to be right with God. And seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The specific knowledge they lacked was that righteousness, right standing, comes from God, not from their own efforts. So at present... Most of my people, Paul's people, refuse, as it says here, to subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What do you mean subject? 
When you say, oh God, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. When you don't parade around your so-called good works before God, obligating him to forgive you. When you say, I come with empty hands, oh God, forgive me. Make me through the cross of Jesus Christ right with you. When you do that, all boasting is now cast out. The only thing you can boast in is the cross. You can't boast in your religion, your virtue, your ethics, your discipline, your sacrifices, your fastings, your religious traditions. Everything is cast out. And that's why many people don't want to submit to the righteousness of Almighty God. We want to lay claim on it ourselves, And then we can arrogantly lord it over others. It's because you're not an Orthodox Jew. It's because you're not a Muslim. It's because you're not this, you're not that. You see, we can lord it over. Lord it over people. But the cross, it kind of levels the playing field. And nobody could boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now look, saying all this, please don't despise my people. That's sort of increasingly happening. Don't despise them. Please don't forget about them. When it comes to missions, evangelism, great commission work, please pray for them just as Paul did. My people rightly understand they need to be right with God. They just don't understand how to get there. They don't understand that Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. They don't understand that the finished work of Christ is the way to be right with God. They don't understand his death, burial, and resurrection. And believing in it is all we need to be right with Almighty God. They don't understand that when Jesus said it is finished, paid in full, they don't understand that all our sins, flaws, shortcomings, defects, and all the rest is washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't understand that. You see, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's no two ways. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, rich, Poor, old, everyone means everyone. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that mean? We can be lawless now that we're Christians? Oh, no. Listen, I got to tell you this. There's a Greek word for end. You got to trust me on this in case you're interested. It's the word telos from which we get the word teleological. I know you're not here for all this, but uh, I just want to impress you with the fact that um, during commercials I study. Um, so look at, when it says end of the law, it looks like it's terminated and, you know, there's no, there's no ethical bounds for us anymore. That's not what it, that it is a meaning of the word telos, but it also can mean, based on the context, the goal or purpose of the law. Christ is the goal or purpose of the law with regard to righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Look, God gave the law of Moses to the Jewish people, Ten Commandments and a bunch of others that emanate from those. My people have tried to live by them. God said, don't do this, they do it. God says, don't do that, they do it. Therefore, the law accomplishes its purpose, which is not to give them righteousness, it's to show them their unrighteousness. Look at here. I do not know I'm exceeding the speed limit when I'm going 55, unless there's a sign posted that says, go no more than 35. 
Now, that speed limit sign cannot constrain me to comply with the law. It cannot change me on the inside. It can only define the fact that I have an inclination to break the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law defines my unrighteousness, but the law cannot make me righteous. So when Jewish people, any people, try to live by any law code, system of do's and don'ts, and find out that they fall short. Nobody here has ever perfectly obeyed all Ten Commandments. Nobody here anywhere has. So when folks realize, though the commandments are good, my attempt to live by them has left me falling short. Doesn't it say that in Romans? All have sinned and fall short of God. Then that person may be more prone to cry out to God for mercy. Not with something, look how good I've been. Look how, how I complied with the law. Nobody has. When a person realizes that the law accomplishes its purpose and it shows the person that person is a lawbreaker, <gasps> indebted to God, then that person might be more prone to say, oh God, I need a means of being right with you other than the doing of the law. I've not done it. I'm wrong with you. Oh, God, mercifully, graciously, do you have another way to be right with you? God says, absolutely. Accept my son, the Lord Jesus, who fulfilled the law for you, who satisfied the demands of the law for you, who died for your infractions of the law. In fact, Paul said also in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, therefore the law, law has become our tutor, like a teacher, leading us to Christ so that we may be justified, not by works, but by faith. That's the purpose of the law. When you realize the purpose of the law, then the law for you has led you to its ultimate goal and purpose, which is to run into the saving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it is. And when that happens, you no longer work for your salvation. You rest in it. I close with this. I was thinking the other day how when I was a kid, my family used to have big family get-togethers on holidays like Thanksgiving. And, uh, man, there was food galore. All the relatives would come. It was a big, like a ton of people. Everyone would bring something. Everyone would chip in, help to serve, help to wash the dishes, you know, stuff like that. But everyone who was a family member was entirely relaxed. They weren't so relaxed that they ceased to serve and contribute and be actively engaged. And yet there was something about being in the family that caused everyone to have a measure of peace and rest that non-family members simply did not have. Somehow every family member knew, I'm in the family irreversibly, and nobody accepts me more than these, my family members. They know all about me. They know about all my flaws and defects and stuff like that, but I can be myself here, and that's the beauty of family get-togethers. You don't have to impress anyone. You could kick off your shoes. You could let your hair down. You could be who you really are because there's a sense of security there. You know they're not going to divorce themselves from you. Now, nobody out the family is experiencing that measure of rest. Again, that rest doesn't make you useless. Somehow you're serving all the more because it's a want to, not a have to. You wouldn't have rest if you had to bring food and wash the dishes in order to gain their favor. You know you have their favor, and that motivates you all the more to contribute. You see where I'm getting at? 
when you find your rightness with God through the merits of Jesus Christ, you're part of the family. And you enter into real Sabbath rest. You cease to work to earn right standing with God. Instead, you know he accepts you just the way you are. He knows all things about you. He knows the sins you have committed and will sadly commit. And something in you tells you you're secure in the family relationship. He's your father who'll never leave you or forsake you. And somehow knowing all that and being in such a place of rest doesn't cause you to be inactive and lazy. You want to serve all the more. You want to go to Kenya, Africa at personal expense and sacrifice to tell people about this God who can usher them into Sabbath rest as well. So I ask you, have you come into this kind of rest? Why not tonight? Now I'll tell you, you may be religious, but religion doesn't give you rest. Religion simply shows you all the stuff you're not doing but need to do to be made right with God. All religion is a do-it-yourself approach to God. Faith in Christ is a done-for-you approach to God. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And when you realize that there's a sense of security of an eternal kind that makes you want to say thank you to God by serving all the more, knowing you don't have to, because you'll never be separated from your Father who will never, ever let you go. Do you have that kind of rest, that kind of peace with God that persuades you you're irreversibly a member of the family just the way you are? That's a sign of true conversion from works and labors to rest and peace and devotion and glad and grateful service to the Savior as a way of saying thank you. I hope you have that kind of rest. Jesus came to give that rest. Come to me, not a religion, not an ethical code. Come to me, says he, all Jews, Gentiles, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, may it be so for everyone here tonight. May it be so for multitudes in Kenya. Thank you, O oh God, for granting us rest. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.